You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Matthew chapter 28 is, is where we are. And if you have popped in on us, this is your first Sunday um, ever, or maybe first Sunday back in a while. You, you have caught us in the middle of a, of a set of sermons um, that we're calling Gospel Plus Mission. Here's what we're trying to highlight in the middle of this. We're just trying to lift up this big biblical theme and, and kind of polish it off and set it before you that a missionary God creates missionary people. That when God saves a person, he sends them. I mean, this is, this is kind of what you see in Acts chapter 9, where God miraculously saves Saul or Paul, and that immediately some of the first words that Jesus gives to Paul is, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer as he's my man to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So this is the idea. When God saves, this is the continual pattern of God, is that he sends. That when the gospel explodes in a person's heart, it has outward movement attached to it. Okay, this is, this is the idea that we're trying to set before you. Okay, now this is where we've been over the last several weeks. We, the first week we taught, we just tried to pose the problem. And, and here's basically the issue that we have in the American church is that the people of God are not on the mission of God. So we kind of worked through that. Week two, we, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter five and, and worked through this idea of that God has made you a missionary, that this is a gospel identity that he's given you. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian missionary. Gospel identity. He's entrusted to you the ministry and the message of reconciliation. He is, he has called you ambassadors or witnesses that you're missionaries. Okay. And then week three and four, here's, here's what we tried to do. We tried to show, um, what it means to get the gospel on your lips. What, what it means to declare the gospel from, from your lips. And then last week we talked about the importance of your life, that your life is a visible demonstration of this gospel that you're proclaiming. And that if your life doesn't support it, if your life doesn't show that it's for real, then you make a mockery of what you're trying to speak to people. So we work through that issue. Okay, so now he, here's where we're going today. We're, we're taking one more step, and here's what we're trying to do today. I'm trying to, to, to widen the scope of when you think mission of God, that it's including both your neighborhood, which it does and it should, and we should all think there, but that it also includes the nation's. And so I've got big ambitions and hopes for today. And, and here's essentially what they are, is that God would begin to stir in us and awaken us to the reality of where the world is and where the gospel is not. And that God would begin to saturate our minds and hearts with these God-drenched, spirit-filled ambitions to get the gospel where it isn't. That means crazy things for your life and mine if we sign up for that. And so I have big ambitions that maybe today God would start this stirring that you could not get away from, that would totally wreck the rest of your life. That's my hope. And I, like, you need to pray for yourself just off the cuff, right? Because this is one of those things where like my fear is to freak you out right off the, right out the, you know, right out of the gate. And so you need to pray for yourself in the midst of this. Because here's the thing, God's going to start a stirring in some of us in this room that you will not be able to escape. And that's going to be a good thing. A good thing. Okay, so, so here we go. The context is Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. So he, here's the context, and let me catch you up by the time we get to verse 16. 
Jesus starts his public ministry at 30 years old. And here's one of the first things he starts to do. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, he starts inviting people into the mission. Where, where he, like literally, you think about Matthew chapter 4 where he um, sees Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and they're fishing. He comes up to him and says, I want you to drop your nets and I want you to follow me. This is the context. The mission of God is the context that Jesus made disciples on. Come follow me on mission. On mission is where we'll make disciples. So he invites them into the mission. And and he gets this little band of followers, 12 of them around him. And this begins the revolution that has totally shaken the world, right? Now, okay, when you start to read through the Gospels, though, you start to see very early on that what we know of is this worldwide revolution that's happened called Christianity, that's totally turned the world upside down, it says in Acts 17. We know looking back that it's done that, but when you start from the beginning and when you start reading through the Gospels, you see that the start of this revolution was really rough, that these disciples were continually confused, right? And so when, when you start to track the life and the mind of these disciples, you start to see that, that they always had this picture of Jesus as this military hero. He was going to be the guy on the white horse that kind of restored Israel to this place of prominence among the nations. Okay, so this was their picture of him. Now, now imagine yourself as one of those people thinking that you have pushed the chips of your life in on that. Your life is caught up in this man's bringing this rise and, and this prominence back to Israel, right? You push your chips in and then you get to Matthew chapter 26 and here's what you see happen. He is betrayed. He's arrested, he's beaten senseless, he's falsely accused, he's sentenced to death, and he's executed. That is not a good day for you, right? This is not a good moment for this little band of followers. So now picture what happens to them now. They're all running for their life. I mean, they're kind of huddled up in a room thinking, are they coming for us next? They're scared. They're fearful. And in the midst of that, here's what happens. A couple of the ladies went down to see the tomb that Jesus was in. They come back with this message. Jesus told us to tell you to go to Galilee and see him. That's perplexing, isn't it? I mean, if you're in the middle of that room and you get that message... You're thinking, what in the world is just like A and B do not equal, like this is not happening here, right? Okay, so this is where you pick it up in verse 16. Verse 16, um, Jesus says this, or the, the Bible says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Okay, so, so they get the, the message, go to Galilee. I know he was just crucified, but he just told me to tell you to go there, see him. So they go. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I love this because you just see the rawness of the Bible, right? Anytime Jesus is presented, you always get this response of some worship and some take a step back and say, this does not, I I don't know about this, right? So you've got some that worship and some that doubted. And then here are the words of Jesus to this fear-filled group of followers. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, think about what he just said there. That's a sweeping claim. If your boss in your office comes and says, I have authority over this office, you could live with that, maybe, right? But if he came out and said, I've got authority over the entire universe, the guy's crazy, isn't he? 
Because that's what Jesus is just saying. I have got authority. Everything in the universe submits to me and it's under my rule and my reign. Everything. Now he says this, verse 19. In light of that, verse 8, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Okay, now when you read that verse, I think it's it's somewhat difficult to get what is the main thing that he's telling us to do. Is it to baptize? Is it to go? Is it to make disciples? What, what's the main thing? So I want to try to clarify this for you and, and give you the, the command of the passage. The command that he is telling us is to make disciples. Okay, now I don't want to like drag you through all the Greek here, but here's what's happening there. There's one imperative in the, in the verse, in the passage. There's one. The imperative, the, the verb, the command is to make disciples. And then you have these participles that surround it, that are enforcing it, that are clarifying it and explaining it. But the one command that he's giving here, the primary command is, the imperative is, the command is make disciples. This is the mission of God. This is what Jesus is doing. This is the trail he's on. And he is telling his followers, you need to get on my trail behind what I am doing. And you need to make my plans and my purposes, your plans and your purposes. And you need to start making disciples. That's the command. Okay, now I want to try to to clarify a couple of things in the midst of this command. One is what a disciple is, like a disciple described biblically. And here's a disciple according to the Bible. The, the word means to be a learner or a follower. Disciple is the most common word used in the New Testament to describe those men and women who were going after Jesus, who had believed in Jesus. Disciple is the word that the New Testament uses throughout it to describe what it is to be a follower, a learner, a, a, a person pursuing Jesus. Okay, so when you think about a disciple, here's what a disciple, here's the, here's how this works itself out. A disciple first is presented with who Jesus is. He's the son of God, fully God, fully man. He's the sent one. He's the Messiah. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. He lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. He died a deserve, undeserving death in place of your deserving death. He was buried. He rose from the dead, right? He has ascended to, to the Father and he's empowered you by the Spirit for the mission. This is what Jesus has done. And disciples hear and are presented with who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and a disciple trusts that. Doesn't just agree with the facts, but a disciple trusts him. They, they throw their life on him. They push their chips in and say, my life is wrapped up with this person. A disciple trusts Jesus. Here is me. I'm giving all of me to you. All rights, all claims to my life are now abandoned and they are all in you. That's a disciple. They trust Jesus and they treasure Jesus. He becomes the thing that is supremely valuable to them. This is a disciple. They have trusted and treasured Jesus. Okay, so here's what a disciple is not. A disciple is not a person who agrees with facts. A disciple is someone that's trusted and treasured. A disciple is not someone who admires Jesus. A disciple is someone that follows Jesus. A disciple is not someone who applauds Jesus. Comes to church, holds up their Bible, says amen. That's not a disciple. A disciple is someone who has an appetite for Jesus. A longing, a desire, a want. I love Jesus. This is a disciple. Okay, so when you take a step back, it's important that we see that. Matthew um, 16, Jesus is going to say that you can't be my disciple 
my follower, a pursuer of me, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So a disciple is someone that has denied self. They have forsaken the temporary and fleeting pleasures that this world offers and they have turned to the eternal source of pleasure. They have taken up their cross. They have chosen the willful and the knowing path of suffering as they follow Jesus on the mission. This is why Jesus says count the cost. Because there's cost associated with that, right? And he says, you can't be my disciple unless you're following me. So this is the idea. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Okay, now I want to kind of work you through how disciples made. Because I think it's important that we see this in the text here. You don't have the capacity to make a disciple. I think this is the interesting thing in the passage. You can't do that. You can't reach inside of a human heart and reorient their desires. You can't make a human heart long for Jesus. You can't give a human heart the appetite for God. You, we don't have the capacity to do that. Only God can do those things, right? Only God can make a disciple. This is the interesting thing in the passage. He's commanding us to do something that only he can do. But, but here's, I think, the implication of what this passage is showing. God is telling us and showing us in this that, yes, making a disciple, that is only something I can do. I, God, am the only one that can make a disciple. But here is the beauty of it, that God is saying, my means, my chosen means, the only way I will make disciples is through my people. So, so I think you can get the implication this way. God is the disciple maker, but he has chosen to make disciples through his people. And so here, here's what this means for your life and mine. It's not our job to convert people, to make people long after and love Jesus. It's our job to demonstrate the gospel with our life and to declare it with our lips. This is the implication. Here's what this command means for us on a practical daily level, is that we are demonstrating and declaring the gospel everywhere we go and to every people we see. This is what it means to live in this. Okay, now I want to make sure that this is just continually clarified for us. That this is not given to a specific set of Christians. It's not given to like the gift and talented section of that. It is given to every man or woman following after Jesus. Every one of them. You, me, if you're a follower of God, you. This is the command. All of us included in this to make disciples. So I think it just begs this question. Is this happening in your life? Are you centered on this thing? Is your life dominated by the rhythms and routines of your life dominated by disciple making, demonstrating and declaring the gospel? This is what he's saying here. This is the command. This is what your life is to be about. This is what you're to do. This is what the gospel moves you toward. The gospel forms this in you and then fuels a life that reflects it. Okay, now, we, now we've got to clarify how this works itself out. And this is where the participles, these three participles in this passage help us here. Now the participles, there's three of them. They're not the main thrust of it. They're not the imperative. They're not the command, but they carry the force of the command. They, they support it and clarify what it means to do these things. What this looks like. Okay, so he gives three participles to clarify. Here's participle number one. He says this, look at verse 19. First participle, the word go. He's saying go. 
Okay, now this is speaking to intentionality. That, that we are to go and make disciples. Intentionality. Rhythms and routines dominated by it. That we're living with a gospel intentionality with everything that we're doing in every relationship that we have, that this saturates it. Now, okay, here's how I typically hear this passage preached when, when a guy stands up and works, you know, through the Great Commission. That when he gets to this part, he says this, the main, the main issue is make disciples, and here's what go, kind of, this is how this supports and clarifies it. It's as you're going, make disciples. You might have heard that before. It's the as you're going thing. And I, I'm not like on a crusade against that. I think it's part of what it's saying. But I don't think it carries the primary thrust of what Jesus is saying with the word go. Like, let me kind of illustrate it this way. Men, if you, uh, if you walked out of your house tomorrow morning and your wife said, hey, if you get out today, why don't you stop by, grab some bread? If you get out. Okay, that, that's one way. That, that's the as you are going way. If you get time, if, if, if you get out and it kind of fits in. Here, here's the other way. If she um, wakes you up and says, Get out of bed, get your clothes on, get in the truck, and go get bread. Now, I don't care what else you do today. You can do a thousand other things, but you need to make sure you go to the grocery store where the bread is, and you get it off the aisle, you pay for it, and you bring it back. And don't walk back to that door without bread. Okay, now that's a whole different way to say that, isn't it? It's not kind of a, if you get around to it issue, it is Jesus directing you, go and make disciples. This is to dominate and saturate your life. There is to be an intentional purpose that you are living with to make disciples, to demonstrate and declare the gospel. People respond to that. God saves them and disciples are made. Okay, this is what he's saying here. There is to be an intentionality to our lives. Now, does that describe you? When you wake up tomorrow, are you going to make disciples? When you go to work, are you going to make disciples? When you spend time within your family, are you going to make disciples? When you're hanging out in your neighborhood, are you there to make disciples? Every part of our life is to make disciples. This is what Jesus is saying here. Okay, now he's going to give the next imperative. Or the, I'm sorry, the next participle. Verse 19, he says this, go therefore, participle one, and make disciples. Primary issue, the command, make disciples of all nations. Then he says this, next, next participle, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Participle number two, baptizing. So here's what he's telling us. It's not just about going and making disciples. It's about going and making disciples who are then baptized. I mean, Jesus is really raising the bar on what baptism is and the importance of it in our life. So just quick implication here. That would mean that if we're a disciple of Jesus and we haven't been baptized, that we need to be baptized. That, that needs to happen. Like Jesus is, is giving us, th this takes on, this, this participle takes the force of that imperative. He is saying, do that, be baptized. Now, the other side of this, as we make disciples, we need to be about getting them baptized on the back end of that. I mean, he's, he's real clear on this. So just a couple of quick things about baptism. Number one is that baptism is a public display of the gospel. This is why it's so important, is that when you get baptized or when we watch people baptized here, here's what's happening there. We are watching a visible display of what God has done on the inside of them. 
So just picture a man, a woman in the baptistry and they are dunked. They're, they're taking, taken under the water. Think about the picture here of the gospel. That the gospel is bearing their old way of life. Their former, as Ephesians would say, their corrupt former manner of life. Right? It's bearing all that. You're forgiven of your sins. You're cleansed from your sin. This is the reason some of you, when we baptize you, we have to keep you under there for a little bit longer and shake you a couple of times, right? So it's this picture of the gospel. You go under the water, old you is dead, and you're raised up to walk in newness of life. This is 2 Corinthians 5. A new creation comes out of that water. This is the out, like the visible display of what the gospel does to a person. You see that? This is why it's so important. This is your public declaration of that has happened to me. Okay, now here's the second thing about baptism. Is baptism publicly identifies you with Christ. Okay, now look at the wording here. It says baptizing them into or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's an identity statement. Being baptized in to this thing. It's an identity issue. So when you're baptized, here's what you're doing. You're publicly identifying your life with Jesus. You're, you're saying publicly that all allegiances, all former ties, they are all cut and they are all now tethered to Jesus. My life is, is wrapped up in his life. So it's this public identification with Jesus. All allegiances are now his. All rights to my life have now been given to him. He is everything. Okay, so this is why we love to baptize here. And when we baptize, we love to tell two stories. I think about how this plays out when we baptize here. Story number one, we like to tell the story that God makes disciples. That God rescues, that God redeems, that God is at work reorienting the hearts of people, saving people. That God does that. Still today, God does that, right? So this is story one we get to tell. When you see the person that is baptized, you're getting to see the visible picture of God saves. He makes disciples. And then here's the second story we want to tell. This is the reason why very few of the baptisms here will be done by Stonegate staff people. Because we want the person who is the means of God making that disciple, the primary means to be the baptizer. We want to tell that story too. We want to show that God saves. That's the person being baptized. But we also want to show that God uses a means for that. He uses his people as the primary means to bring about salvation. So we want that person that does the baptizing to be that. So you get to see both stories. God makes disciples and he does that through means. His men, his women, his children, his sons and daughters on his mission of making disciples. We want both of those pictures shown. And here would be my prayer for us in this room. If you're a disciple and you have not been baptized, you would do that. That's your publicly identifying with Jesus. And here, here's the other thing. For those that are baptized disciples in here, is that over this next year, that you would have the gospel on your lips, that you would be going and making disciples, and that God would use you as a means for someone's salvation, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend. And that you would get to stand before us and we would get to celebrate God saves and he used you. I have a hope of that for you. That you would not be like a normal person who claims the name of Jesus, but lives their entire life without that happening. So 
to baptizing. Okay, now he's going to give the third imperative. Or, I'm sorry, third participle. Verse 20. So it's go, make disciples, primary imperative. Go, participle one, describing, clarifying that. Baptizing, describing, clarifying that, bringing force to that. And then here's the last one in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So that last, last participle is teaching. So, so summary here. This is how this fits together. The, the men and women of God get the gospel on their lips and, and it's displayed in their life. God comes in and starts to stir and work in a person's heart. They respond to that. A disciple is made. And then we get this privilege of baptizing them. And then we get this massive responsibility then to walk beside them and to show them what it means to love Jesus and walk with Jesus. What it means to follow his commands. What a life looks like that is lived in light of the gospel. We get this beautiful responsibility to come beside people and show them this is what it means to love and walk after and pursue Jesus. This is what he's saying. Make disciples, go, baptize, and then teach them. This is the picture for all of our life. This is binding on you, on me, on us as a church. This is what we're about. This is what God is about. Okay. Now, this is where, this is where the convo turns. Now we've got to widen this out. And now I want you to see the scope of what Jesus is saying here. Okay. So look at verse 19. Here comes the scope. We're going to widen this out. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All the nations. That's the scope. Jesus is saying this. And I think, I think you have heard this. If you've been here over the last month, you could not be here and really be here without hearing this. The gospel informs the way you approach your neighborhood. The gospel informs the way you impro- approach your workplace. The gospel informs the way you approach your friends. The gospel informs all of that. It has something to say about your neighborhood, that we are to make disciples in our neighborhoods. I, I don't think you could miss that. That God has strategically placed you in your neighborhood for gospel expansion. That you're supposed to live there to make disciples there. Couldn't miss it. But here's what we haven't said yet. And here's what we need to say this morning. That the mission of God is bigger than your neighborhood. The mission of God is wider than your neighborhood. The mission of God also includes the nations. And we need to hear this this morning. That the mission of God is global. The mission of God is to the ends of the earth. The mission of God is to get the gospel to every people on the planet. That's the mission. Okay, now I want to tell you over the next few minutes, the, and my hope here is that God would start to work some wild things in you. That he would start to, to awaken you to the reality of the world, where the world is, where the gospel isn't, and it would start to stir in you crazy ambitions that alter everything about your life. Everything. Okay, so let me take a step back and just give you the biblical support for what we're, what we're trying to say here. Jesus, after he was resurrected from the dead, okay, he, he just spoke Matthew 28, and, and over and over again, he said things like this in this 40-day period between his resurrection, walking around the earth 40 days, and when he ascended. Over and over, he kept saying things like, get the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
to all the nations. So you get this in Matthew chapter 28. If you were to flip over to Mark chapter 16, the last book or last chapter of Mark, you're going to see it there too. It'll be on the screen for you as well. He says this in Mark 16 verse 15. And he said to them, Okay, in this res- between this resurrection and ascension period, this 40 day period, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's Mark. Okay, flip another, one more book over to the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. At the end of Luke in verse 45 through 47, here's what Jesus says. Then he, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, verse 46, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins, listen to this, should be proclaimed, declared, the gospel should be taken, that, that forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You flip over kind of the second part of the book of Luke is Acts, Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, right before Jesus ascends, he's talking to his disciples, Acts 1-8, and he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here is what Jesus is saying, that the gospel is for your neighborhood. It is for Jerusalem. But it is also for Judea and Samaria. It is also for the ends of the the world. It is for your neighborhood. It definitely is. It is for your neighbors. But it is also for the nations. Okay, this is the scope. It's for the nations. Okay, now, now here, this is a crucial moment for us right here. Crucial. When you hear the word nations, Matthew 28, go make disciples, of all nations. Here is what a 21st century American mind reading his English Bible instantly thinks. That that Jesus is saying, okay, so that means we need to make sure people in China, we've got them. We need to make sure people in Canada, people in Mexico, we need to make sure the gospel gets to all of these geopolitical nations, countries. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not talking about geopolitical countries. He's talking about people groups. Okay, so that word nations, you might just circle that word in your Bible. Maybe even write this above it. That's the Greek word ethnos, where we get the word ethnicities. What Jesus is saying is you need to get the gospel to every pocket of people, every people group that does not have the gospel in it in an understandable way. So we're not talking about China here. We are talking about groups of people, these people groups. This is what a people group is. A people group is a group of people that when you drop the gospel into it, the gospel can spread and will spread until it gets to a cultural, a linguistic, maybe a geographical, maybe a political boundary that would stop the gospel from expanding. That's a people group. Drop the gospel in, it expands. Where that stops is a group of people. That's an ethnicity. That, that's a, that, that's what we're getting at. That's a nation. That's a group of people that we're talking about here. And here is what Jesus is saying. I want people out of every people group, out of every ethnicity, out of every nation, out of every ethnos. I want them from everywhere. This is the global purpose of God. It's not just a neighborhood issue. It's also a nation's thing that God is saying, I love your neighborhood and I also love the nations. I love them both and I want disciples out of 
all of them. And this is the picture. When you see heaven and history collide in, in Revelation chapter 7, you see a picture, a glimpse forward of what heaven will be like. And in that picture, you see John saying this, Jesus communicating this through John. John gets this vision of a multitude that could not be counted. And then he says, men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue that have gathered around Jesus and they're proclaiming him. Welcome to the worldwide mission of God. This is what Jesus is doing. This is it. Okay, so how many people groups are there on the planet? There are 16,597 people groups. Distinct group of peoples. You drop the gospel in, it spreads, it ends. People group. 16,597 of those. That makes up the world. Okay? Jesus is saying, I want them out of every one of those groups. Disciples. Out of all of those nations. Out of all those ethnicities. And you know what I love about watching these early disciples? They're scared to death in an upper room, right? He calls them to come and meet them. He gives them this command. They push all of their chips in and leverage every breath that God gives them for the mission. So, so you take this little band of followers, you, you start reading in Acts chapter 2, they get up and preach on that day, 3,000 are saved. Persecution comes, they're scattered out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and they're preaching everywhere they go. They leveraged everything in obedience to this command of disciples out of all nations. Okay, so that, that leads us to ask this question. So where are we today? Okay, we got off to a great start. They're going, they're scattered, they're preaching. Where are we today? Out of the 16,597 people groups, how many have we reached? Or, or we'll maybe even phrase it this way. How many are still unreached? This is the number. 6,916 people groups are still unreached with the gospel. This is the world. These are the people who are still not reached. 6,916. Now here's what unreached means. Unreached means there is no gospel witness in their place amongst their people. They don't have churches, indigenous churches that are getting the gospel out and reaching their culture. They have less than 2% Christians. There's no KLTY playing, right? John MacArthur is not coming across the radio. They don't have Bibles in their language. Men and women spend their entire lives without getting to know Christians. This is the picture. If they get a a, a picture of Jesus that's presented to them, it's going to be distorted. They have no real opportunity to ever hear an accurate gospel. Six thousand nine hundred and sixteen of them. This is the Amic people. You say, who are they? I'm glad you asked. They're about a million strong in Afghanistan. Some of them kind of spill over into Iran. One of the most unreached peoples on the planet. Absolutely no Christian presence. Zero percent presence of Christians there. It's the sixth most dangerous people group to live in on the planet if you were to become a Christian. About a million strong, huh? Take the Yadav people of India. 55 million men, women, and children. No gospel witness. Zero percent Christians. No Bible. No gospel opportunity. No church. 
And there are 6,916 people groups just like them. If you want to take this in, in kind of the context of a world population, here's what this means. World population is 6.73 billion roughly right now. The unreached population of those 6.73 billion, 2.77 billion. Do the math on the percentage there. 40% of the peoples living right now on planet earth are in unreached people groups where, where little boys and little girls grow up to be men and women. They get married. They have babies. They work a job. They become grandmas and grandpas. And they die with no real opportunity to ever hear the name of Jesus. 90% of the people today, roughly, 90% of the people who are Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists on planet Earth right now know no Christian. There is no gospel there. I mean, we're getting that. They are completely unreached. And here is what God is telling, or Jesus is telling the disciples then, and he is telling us now, that our vision of the world and how we're leveraging our life, neighborhoods are huge. They're crucial. We need to be on mission in our neighborhoods. But our vision for our life and how we are leveraging it, leveraging it has to also include the nations. This is what he's saying. Here's what this means for us, that not all of us can stay in our neighborhoods and reach the unreached peoples of the world. Not everybody can do that. That means that some people have to uproot their lives and their families and take their families and their lives and get new neighbors in nations that are unreached. This is what that means. That we're going to have to slay this addiction to comfort and security for the sake of the gospel, right? That the gospel has to form us in such a way that we can see the reality of where the world is and where the gospel isn't and it can break our hearts to such a degree that it fuels a life of mission and sacrifice as we get the gospel there. And just to stir this pot a little bit more, I, I, I think knowing Christians that are in American culture, just as long as I've known them, this is what I'll just assume about us is that we do not ask the question as whether or not God is calling us to go there. We just assume that our neighborhood is the mission. It's just our assumption. And to stir this in you just a little bit deeper, I think the burden of proof lies with you and I in the land of super abundance to have to justify why it is that we stay here and not go there. I mean, this is where I have these huge ambitions for us, that God would start to work this deep into our hearts and give us great ambitions for how we're going to leverage our life for the unreached of the world. Okay, so let's go back to, to Matthew chapter 28 here, and I want to encourage you with two things, and we'll kind of wrap it up. The two bookends to this passage, at the front and at the back. Okay, here, here's how it goes. The bookends, like this. You've got a fearful group of followers, okay? This is, this is where we are. Remember, they're in the upper room. They're scared. They've leveraged everything. They just saw their master get executed. He comes to them. He's given them this command. And to book in this command, here's what he says on the front end of it. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, now think about this. The command he's just about to give them, make disciples of all nations, it's linked to this. He says, therefore, in light of this, like this claim of Jesus is our confidence. Our confidence lies in the fact that Jesus is saying, I am in complete and absolute authority. Every person, every place on the planet is underneath my rule and my reign. I am over everything. My reign and rule is universal. That means that it's over disease, cancer, blindness, you name it. Over all of that, God's an authority. That Jesus is saying, I I have an authority over every demon. If you just watch the life of Jesus, you see him continually casting those things out, right? That I am over every piece of sickness. I'm over all suffering. I'm over sin. On the cross, I destroyed sin, death, and Satan. I'm, I'm an authority over nature. I create wind and I can calm wind, right? And I am an authority over every nation on the planet. This is what he's saying. This is the confidence that we do missions under, that that we get a global perspective, that we look at our neighborhoods and the nations under, that God is in authority over every house, over every family, over every person, over every place. So here's what this means for us as we just practically live underneath this. Is it the mission of God redeeming, rescuing, making disciples in every nation on the planet? It's not dependent upon you and I. It's not dependent upon our business savvy, our wisdom. The mission of God rests squarely on the authority of Jesus, who he is and what he has done on the cross and what he is doing in the midst of his people. That's it. That's where the mission lies. So this is not God begging us to be involved in his mission so he can get it accomplished. It is God inviting you and I into the mission that he is doing, that he is over. You see this picture here, that God is in authority over all things, inviting us in to the joy-filled mission that he's on. He says, I've got all authority. Now watch the, the back end of the passage, verse 20. Last few words. Go and make disciples, all nations, baptize them, teach them. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I, I just want to just say a couple of things just clearly on, on this. That as a church family, living on mission in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, amongst the nations, it is an impossibility for us to, to live in and accomplish this mission apart from the presence of God in our life. It's an impossibility. There's this one passage in the Old Testament in Judges, it's, it's kind of inside of the life of Samson that haunts me as a pastor and a preacher and a guy that loves the church and, and is a part of a church. Um, it's, this, it's this moment in Samson's life where his wife has cut his hair. Don't marry that lady, right? So his wife has cut his hair, the Philistines come upon him, and he just assumes the presence of God's going to be with him. He's going to slay these guys just like he always has. And, and here's what happens. This, this one little snippet, this one little verse here where, where the Bible says, the presence of God left him and he didn't know it. And here's why it haunts me for us as a church is because in our culture and, and just in how churches work, if you're a good enough communicator, you get the right marketing strategy. Your church can have the appearance of success 
without the presence of Jesus in it. And we could wake up one day and realize that we are so far off the mission of God that Jesus has pulled back the active awareness of his presence amongst us. And that scares me to death. I, I, I think you could go in and out of most churches and wonder, did, did God show up or not, right? And listen, if you do not have an active sense of the awareness of God in your life, and if we do not have an active sense of the awareness of God in our church, here's the implication of that. That means that we are not actively living in the mission of God. And so it worries me for us to think about that. We need the presence of God. And here's how this promise flows. As you invite your neighbors into your life and you do everything you can to demonstrate the gospel before them, you get to know their friends. They get to know your friends. As you declare the gospel with your lips into their lives, into their mind, as they start to, to, to chew on these things, as you start to speak the gospel to a coworker, as you start to befriend um, and kind of bring in to, to your life, as you do all that, here, here's what you can know. The presence of God is with you in that. That's a promise that God's giving you here. And as some of us have an inescapable, we can't get away from the nations. We, we, God will not let us rest with our neighborhood, but he's calling us to make new neighborhoods and new nations that are unreached. As God starts to stir that in us, and that means for us that we uproot our family, our kids, our everything, and we plant our lives in a different culture that really doesn't even want us there. Here, here's the promise that, that Jesus gives us. is I'm not just sending you out on that. I'm leading you in that. That, that I'm with you in that. And, and he, here's my hope for us in this room. 20-somethings, 30-somethings. Every breath God gives you, you would leverage for the mission in your neighborhood and amongst the nations. And I want to talk just, and we'll end it with this, to our crew that's a little bit older in the room, that even has like a gaze toward retirement coming down the road. And, and really, if you're just to be honest with your own heart, you have this ambition of retiring early and making it really easy for yourself. If you, if you could just play the cards how you would want them played, that's what you would like to do. My hope for you is that God would wreck that ambition and give you a new one. That, that God would start to stir in you, here is the world and here's where the gospel isn't. And that you would get this God-drenched ambition to use the last chapters of your life, not just for your neighborhood, before the nations, for the unreached, that you would get that sort of an ambition, that you would spend the latter part of your life inside of and, and just drenched with the mission of God. So I want to encourage you with one story and then, then we're done. A guy named Raymond Lowell. He was born in uh, 1235. And uh, he, he was born off the coast of Spain on an island. He had a, born into a wealthy family. In the midst of just early on in his life, he had five visions, kind of came through dreams that re-altered his life and God saved him. And he kind of chose the route of kind of a monistic life for a while. And then he became a missionary to North Africa. Okay, now this is Raymond Lowell. And now when we pick the story up, this is going to be out of a snippet of a biography of him. He's 79 years old and he, he's pulled back from the mission field. And he's teaching a language class. He's learned Arabic, teaching a language class in Europe. 
79 years old, this is how, how his life goes from there. At 79, teaching in Europe, it says this, his pupils and friends naturally desired that he should end his days in the peaceful pursuit of learning and the comfort of companionship. Just retire easy. You put your time in. Come on. Here's what he says. However, this was not Lowell's wish. His ambition was to die as a missionary and not as a teacher of philosophy. In Lowell's contemplations or in his journals, here's what we read. Men are wont to die, O Lord, from old age, the failure of natural warmth and excess of cold. In other words, he's saying this, that if you just allow people to pick the way they're going to go, they're going to take the natural route. Let me live as long as I can in as much comfort as I can. Let me go that route. If you're here with us last week, let me go the route of sucking applesauce out of a straw in a nursing home. That's how I'll go, right? Okay, so, so this, he's just saying this is how people naturally want to go out. Okay, then he says this, but thus, if it be thy will, God, if it be your will, your servant, like he's talking about himself, your servant doesn't want to die that way, doesn't wish to die like this. He, talking of himself, would prefer to die in the glow of love, even as thou was willing to die for him. Now, this is how his life plays out. The dangers and difficulties that made Lowell shrink back from his journey amongst the Muslims in North Africa in, in 1291 only urged him forward to North Africa again in 1314 at the age of 79. When we are all settled in, coasting the last few years of our life, right? 79, he goes back. His love had not grown cold, but burned the brighter. He longed not only for the martyr's crown, but also once more to see his little band of North African believers. Animated by these sentiments, he crossed over on August 14th and for nearly a whole year labored secretly among a little uh, circle of converts, whom on his previous visits he had won over to the Christian faith. At length and weary of seclusion and longing for martyrdom, he came forth into the open market and presented himself to the people as the same man whom they had once expelled from their town. And kind of give this biblical imagery. It was Elijah showing himself to the mob of Ahabs. Lull stood before them and threatened them with divine wrath that they still persisted in their errors. He pleaded with love, spoke plainly the whole truth. The consequence can be, the consequence of this can be easily anticipated. Filled with fanatic fury at his boldness and unable to reply to his arguments, the populace seized him and dragged him out of the town. There, by the command of the king, he was stoned to death on the 30th of June, 1315, at the age of 80 years old. And my hope and prayer for some of us is that you would go out like that in a glow of love for the sake of the nations. Let's pray. So, so here's how we'll end. We'll, we'll sing here in just a second, but I, I want to give you just a moment to process some of that. And maybe this would be a moment to repent, to, to, to really confess to God that I am not centered on making disciples like I should be. That, that I, I live in a neighborhood and I'm not centered on that. I work amongst the people and that is not the dominant theme of my life. I am not living with this intentionality to go and make disciples. So, so maybe God's, God is prompting good repentance in your life today. 
And here is my hope for a lot of us, that God would start to stir in you and would chase you and be relentless as he lays this burden for the nations over your life. I I just can't wait for the day that God chases you down in that, for those of you that that he's going to stir that in, that when he chases you down and, and you submit to that, and, and you get to stand up before us and you get to tell us the story of how God has worked in you a move to the nations. How God has worked in you to uproot your family and to plant them amongst an unreached people with no gospel access. I, God, I look forward to that day. It's going to be one of those days that as a pastor, I fall apart. So we look forward to that. So Jesus, I pray that you would do these sorts of things in us. God, I pray that for for this group of followers that you have assembled in this family, God, that, that we would be ascending church. God, that we would be faithful in our view of our neighborhoods and in our view of the nations. God, that we would be brokenhearted for the billions of people who are living right now with no access to the gospel and God that you would move in some of us with such force that we could not say no to that 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 it would cause a radical reorientation of our life and what we're doing and how we're doing so God I pray that you would do these things amongst us God, we need great grace and and we need and we claim the promise that in our neighborhoods, in the nations, that you have all authority. And as we go, that we are underneath that authority. And as we go, you are leading the way and you are with us. It's in your good and gracious name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.